Good morning, one and all. Happy August, and welcome to Faith Community Church. You know, I love living life with you and around you. Such a privilege and a joy. My name is Larry Zyman. That includes our friends online, online as well. Thank, thank you for being here, all of you. I want you to know that uh, I've lived and served here at Faith Community for over 30 years, and I think that's our first ever Scooby-Doo reference that ever came up from the front. So, so Dan's going to change some things around here. That's right. So um, we're so glad to have Dan and Leah with us, and uh, we think you're going to be really pleased with what they bring to the table. Also, I want to thank for the army of people who served during VBS. It was an incredible week. The, how this place looks like this after what it looked like Friday afternoon, I'll never know. But to the dozens and dozens of you made that happen, thank you, thank you. And for the work you did in the kids' lives, it really, really matters, so thanks. These next four weeks, we're going to be considering what it means to live a life on purpose as followers of Jesus. When a person hears Jesus' call to follow me, it's not about an invitation to some vague religiosity that helps somewhat, makes them a marginally better person. It is about embracing the way and the values of Jesus, anchoring our hearts and our ambitions to him. This is a life on purpose. In this series, we're going to look at unique episodes of Jesus' life in a time slot between his baptism and the calling of his first disciples, which happens in Luke chapters 4 and 5. So you can begin turning there. It's found on page 809 in the Bibles in front of you, or if you've got your own, please bust it out, your handy-dandy mobile device, or however you do it, please get there. But if you have said yes to Jesus, you have entered a conflict that's been raging since the beginning of time. From the garden with Adam and Eve to the trials and tribulations of Job, we will see it in the life of Jesus at his time. It happened in the early church. It will be abundantly obvious in our own lives, and it will never change until that day when Jesus righteously and decisively will make all things right. In the meantime, we're at war. Not with our neighbors. Not with the people who vote differently than us Tuesday. Not with those a differing view of climate change. We're at war at a different level. There are forces, spiritual forces at work, seeking to estrange us from God, seeking to estrange us from one another. And today we want to equip you on how to stand against this opposition. What we're going to observe in the text we see today is that we have, and Jesus had, a formidable adversary who could be held off through, number one, a settled identity, and secondly, sufficient weaponry. So with that, let's read from Luke 4. It reads, And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil picked him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, to you I will give all this authority and their glory for it has been delivered to me 
and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him up to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down for here, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against the stone. And Jesus answered him, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God for sure. So what we see in this text that we face, and Jesus faced a formidable enemy, but this enemy can be held off through a settled identity and sufficient weaponry. This passage in Luke 4 follows chapter 3. That's a good way to do it, 4 coming after 3. That's good. But in chapter 3, Jesus is baptized, the heavens open, the Spirit descends on him in bodily form, and a voice from heaven says, this is my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. And this is one of several passages in the Bible that reinforce the Christian doctrine of the Trinity. That is that God is three persons in one essence. Scripture never uses the word Trinity. That's a word we use to give us handles. But it reflects this three in oneness many times and we describe it as Trinity. In chapter 3, we have Jesus in the river, the Spirit descending as a dove, and the voice from heaven all happening at the same time. Okay, now on to chapter 4. Now that the Spirit has descended or anointed or empowered Jesus, he's ready to go public. He starts to go on the offensive. You might view this in-between time that we're looking at right now kind of as the preseason that had, takes place before the kickoff that's coming. I could hear the kids at the high school practicing football this week. All right? It might be strange to you that the first thing that the Spirit does when he empowers him is leads him into the wilderness. And this is not a throwaway line in the story here. Jesus is both full of the Spirit and being led into wilderness at the same time. So, today, if you find yourself in the wilderness, and I know many of you are, I want you to take heart. We often think that when we're in the wilderness, this is a time of being forsaken. Jesus is full of the Spirit, led by the Spirit, into the wilderness. Let me encourage you to look for more than deliverance from the wilderness, which I seek when I'm there. Look for more than deliverance. Look for God. Look for God at that time. You may be in the process of being developed for greater things through a season of dependence rather than ease. In verse 2 here, the tempter is referred to as the devil. And what we see in Scripture overall, in this passage specifically, is that this formidable adversary is both persistent and he's strategic. Look at the persistence we see in this text. Verse 2 states, for 40 days Jesus was being tempted by the devil. The words translated uh, being tempted here is what is called a present participle. It talks about the ongoing nature of this happening. Indicated that Jesus was being 
uh, tempted throughout the 40 days. And most commentators see these three temptations at the end as the pinnacle of the temptation process. So the devil persistently chips away during these 40 days with this crescendo effect in our text. And after this 40-day battle and the climax of temptations in our text, Jesus holds his ground after going through all this. Verse 13 says that the devil left him <sighs> until an opportune time. He's not going away. It's not goodbye. It's later. I'll be back. This adversary is persistent. But this adversary is also strategic, appealing to our areas of vulnerability. Have you ever read a passage of scripture that's so blatantly obvious you wonder why it was written? He hadn't eaten in 40 days. He was hungry? I, I, I would have picked up on that. Me, 40 hours, I'd be in the fetal position. Jesus, 40 days, of course he's hungry. And notice how the devil tempts him. He tempts him in the area of vulnerability. Make this into bread. Right? It's strategic. The devil just doesn't tempt in general. He tempts specifically. Like he would never tempt me to steal a hairbrush. All right? Why? But there are areas of my life that I'm much more vulnerable, and those become pulls to me. Those are draws, and that's where the temptation comes. This, this enemy is strategic. Jesus is hungry, and, and the devil tempts him to bust out his messianic power to show what kind of leader he is to meet his own needs. Eat, he says. That's shrewd. That's, that's smart strategery. In the second temptation, the devil takes Jesus up and somehow, try to think of this, to show him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. Talk about sensory overload. And this is all put before him. And the devil gives Jesus the opportunity of it all to win the lottery for earthly power and authority. Jesus and his people have been living under the oppressive thumb of Rome and their godless practices and their ways. The devil says, Jesus, I got a reset for you. I got a new day, and you get to be in charge. You can do whatever you want. Right the wrongs that have been done. That seems really appealing to me. Again, Jesus doesn't bite. He has been given the promises and a plan from the Father, which he doesn't set aside. The strategic nature of the adversary showed again in the third temptation as well. In this, Jesus has led to the pinnacle of the temple. It's the holiest place for the people of God. And it could be assumed that there's a crowd there, you know, waiting for things to take place. And he invites him to throw himself off the temple. And that Jesus would be caught by the angels. Because it is written in Psalm 91 that he will give his angels charge over you. Notice what the enemy is doing here. In this temptation, he's using the language of Scripture. He's using the language of Scripture. So, Jesus is being tempted to use his power for self-centered ends. He's being tempted to take a shortcut on behalf of the nations and to force God's hand on how he must fulfill the covenant promises he gives to Israel. 
So these are the temptations Jesus has given at the end of 40 days of temptation. What we see is that the devil is both persistent and strategic, trying to pull the rug out from Jesus' role as the Messiah leader, the liberator of God's people, but to no avail. An on-purpose life recognizes both the war that exists and the tactics that are being used. In the epistles, which speaks of life after Jesus' time on earth, it shows that this wasn't simply an issue for, the early, uh, for Jesus, but for the early church as well. Paul reminds the church in Ephesus that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, we heard this earlier, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. And so this verse suggests that while we are doing war against flesh and blood, against other image bearers, the true conflict is taking place at another level, against spiritual forces. Our adversary is persistent and strategic. This enemy is cunning. And Jesus' response reflects how one can stand against such an enemy. He does so through a settled identity and sufficient weaponry. What does it mean for us? We're going to start with us and go back to Jesus in a moment. What does it mean for us to have a settled identity when it comes to temptation? It means being so rooted and grounded in the gospel that the decisions, the way you process life comes from the gospel and no other source. This is part of what we mean by living a gospel-inspired life. You are so captivated by the gospel. It becomes the means by which you withstand the attempts to be derailed. It becomes your very identity. So what is your identity today? How do you see yourself? You know, in the affluence we have here in the West, we're offering a staggering number of choices. Staggering number. Perhaps you see yourself as an entrepreneur, a student, a stay-at-home mom, a professional, an advocate, a realist, whatever. What or who makes you, you? What do you stand on? What's your identity? In our hyper-politicized society, identity po politics is calling for us, attempting to capture people and put them in blocks based on their ethnicity, class, or gender preferences, or a host of other features that are tribal in nature that make us us-them rather than us. It's a means of separating rather than uniting us. And you could be easily confused living in a place like Hudson with all that it offers. You have a nice house and vehicles. You can afford to take a good vacation, maybe two during the years. Your kids get good grades and are a source of pride. Yet something still rings hollow. Is it possible that you're a current identity? What you're living the lens of life through and pursue and process life is an area that's not going to deliver for you. You might reflect the U2 song, speaking of the pursuit of love of another as a means of fulfillment. When it says, I have climbed the highest mountains, I've run through the fields only to be with you. Only to be with you. I've run, I have crawled, I have scaled these city walls only to be with you. But I still haven't found what I'm looking for. I still haven't found what I'm looking for. 
And good news, I was tempted to sing that, and I didn't for you. <laughs> you possess, and you've done so much, but it's still not enough. So you might try a new identity. You remake yourself. In the gospel, you are offered an identity that with, can withstand any war that takes place from any source, be it human or satanic. The identity the child of God has offers offers more riches than any person has ever uncovered. And it has proven itself in the life of God's people to be more than enough. More than enough. And in our text today, Jesus is challenged in his identity. Hungry, duh, from 40 days of fasting, the devil not only appeals to Jesus to relieve himself of his hunger, but challenges his identity as the beloved son of God that we saw in Luke chapter 3. He says, if you are the son of God, well, God just said, you are my beloved son, the chapter before. Listen to your growling stomach. Listen to an alternative voice. Don't listen to him. Prove your sonship. Prove your divinity. Crank out a little magic. Jesus doesn't engage. He doesn't go there. Believing what the Father said about him rather than the call to prove his identity at the behest of the enemy. Never let the enemy define you. He repeats this approach in the third temptation in verse 9 when he says, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. Again, the devil is saying, prove to me what the Father has said about you is true. And Jesus doesn't need to go there because he has a settled identity. It is written. It is said. That is what he is clinging to. He believes and responds in light of the Father's declaration and no other. So if you've settled your identity in Christ and you're here today, if you have not been baptized three weeks from today, that would be a really good next step for you to say this is where my identity lies and I'm stating this publicly. Go online and register. So Jesus not only brings to the table a settled identity, but he brings sufficient weaponry. The temptations that came Jesus' way makes great sense to me. Feed your hunger now. Take your kingdom now. Have the Father display his loyalty to you now rather than down the road. These are natural impulses the devil is appealing to which require a supernatural override, something bigger than that has to intervene. Jesus' response is to run to the word of God. Why? Isaiah tells us. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Later on, Jesus will say that heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will never pass away. And Peter will say in his first epistle a few years down the road, he will quote Isaiah that the word of God endures forever. So the word of God coupled with the settled identity in Christ is up to the task of turning aside temptation. The word of God here is not merely a helpful handbook. It's battle-tested, and it's up to the test. It's up to it. 
And look what happens when the devil starts by challenging his identity. If you are the Son of God, command the stone to become bread. Jesus begins by answering, it is written, which is another way of saying the scripture declares, or the Bible says, that man shall not live by bread alone, quoting Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. In the second temptation, the devil offers him glory. If Jesus will worship him now, not the longer, more grueling process and promise of the Father. You don't need to delay your gratification. Take it now. And Jesus responds once again. It is written, worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. In the third temptation, the devil shows his shrewdness by tempting Jesus with scripture himself, challenging his identity by saying, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written. He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. He quotes Psalm 91. How clever is that? Having been taken out with scripture, he says, ah, I'll bust out some of my own. Kind of a judo move, trying to take Jesus' momentum and throw him aside. But Jan, Jesus handles this tactic by using Scripture properly. This is because he's grounded in God's Word. It's not merely data on a page to him. It's his life. And when that's the case, Scripture becomes something great to you. He sees this invitation to this grand move of jumping off the temple is wrong because elsewhere it says, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. It's like the retailer puts the $20 bill up to the light to check its authenticity. What the devil said here isn't passing the smell test. And if someone is using a scripture and it doesn't line up with another scripture... One of these two scriptures are being interpreted wrong, or possibly both of them. And the enemy was using Psalm 91 to try to get Jesus to do something foolhardy and against the purposes of God. Paul highlights the nature of this battle again in the church in Corinth as they face similar battles. Like the people in Ephesians, he warned that the battle's not against flesh and blood. He says, though we walk in the flesh, though we live in the flesh, we're not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. And we destroy arguments in every lofty opinion that is raised up against the knowledge of God, and we take every thought captive to obey Christ. In battling strongholds, you know what a stronghold is? A stronghold are those areas in which defeat seems the norm and hope seems elusive? We're not merely called to recognize every opinion that fights against knowledge of God. We're to destroy them. It's a battle. It's a war. Our wrong behavior is fueled by wrong thinking. We're to take these thoughts captive to Christ so they can be so we can obey Christ. So it's not merely a no to the devil. It's an emphatic yes to Jesus and his way. Sufficient weaponry is needed to resist this kind of temptation. We must know what is right to think rightly. 
which is why we turn to the word of God. And as the gospel animates our lives, we live in the way of Jesus. And we want this for every one of you here at FCC. We want this for everyone, which is why we're trying to welcome people all the time. We want this for our children, that every young person God brings our way comes to know Jesus, to think like Jesus thinks, to do the things Jesus would do, and to feel about themselves and others the way Jesus does. It's what we want to work into their lives. And for over a year now, we've been in a process of evaluating our current offerings for children and have been pursuing a curriculum that is both fun and engaging without the goal being fun and engagement. It's greater than that. We want to see the lives of Jesus imprinted upon our kids. So we're taking our next generation ministry to the next level this fall. That's why we brought Dan on staff and why you should meet him after the service and finish off the donuts that are left. All right? That's why we took a break from programming this summer. It's not so they could kick back and do nothing. They've been creating an on-ramp all summer long. So when this kicks off, we're on our way. We're on our way. And if you want to be part of this changing of our tide to help ground our kids with deeper, authentic hope in the shaky world they're in, there's going to be representatives from the four uh, Next Generation Ministry and the pub tables as well after the service. That's for Faith Kids. That's for Faith Littles. That's new to me, Faith Littles. That's early childhood, right? For the Refuge and Awana. Okay, they'll be out there wanting to chat. This is not a time to go register. It's a time to get to know what they're up to, what they're thinking, and consider how you might be part of helping this take off for the Next Generation Ministries in the fall. But just looking around here, I'd say there's more than half a dozen or so people who are older than high school here today, all right? Give or take. Why does all this identity and weaponry talk matter? If our identity is not rooted in Christ, we're going to be prone to idolatry. If he's not filling our hearts, something else will fill that vacuum. And there's a lot of options here, a lot of options. One that's particularly disturbing to me is the over-political nature that is making its way into our culture. That's inconsistent with the way of Jesus. And this idolatry for some in the church is choking our vibrant witness and deadening the lives of some of our people. Perhaps that's your battle today. But wherever, where is your battle? Where's your battle? Alexander Solzhenitsyn was a decorated commander in the Russian army. Some person who we won't mention by name in the 9 o'clock service said he was a general. And all his friends that knew history came up and said, Larry, he was only a captain. So he was a captain in the Russian army. And he was in prison at the end of World War II for making a disparaging comment about their leader, Joseph Stalin. Could you imagine how full our jails would be? If we made those comments, people were jailed. His years in prison were hardly pleasant at all. But as Solzhenitsyn writes in the story of the Gulag Archipelago, those years gave him striking insight into the reality of human nature. He saw how human beings became evil and how they became good. He reflected how when he was younger and so full of himself, 
He would do things. He would commit atrocities with the backing of the government, with arguments that would, you know, just supplied everything he needed, giving him permission. And when he was thrown in prison, follow, finally rotting in prison like some of the people he treated, he found within himself the first stirrings of good. And this is what he learned. Solzhenitsyn says, Gradually it was disclosed to me that the line separating good and evil doesn't pass through the states, nor through the classes, nor through political parties either, but right through every human heart and through all human hearts. This is where the battle is. The real battleground is not red versus blue, labor versus management, husband versus wife, rich versus poor, black versus white. The real and potential conflicts are the results of a war within the human heart. And our hearts are part of a conflict that's been raging since the beginning of time. Our adversary is formidable, but the resources in the gospel are sufficient. They are enough. The gospel believed, the gospel applied to our lives, offer us an identity and a weaponry to stand against the schemes of the enemy. And so in our text today, Jesus not only offers us a model of how to stand against the temptation and how to live an on-purpose life, but by overcoming every temptation he ever faced. He's a suitable substitute for our failures, which mine are many. Jesus is both the model and the strength that is needed in our struggle against temptation. So with that, remember, we have a formidable enemy. But with this identity, and with this weaponry that the gospel offers, we'll be good. We'll be good. Will you pray with me? Father, open our eyes to see where the real battle lies that our enemies may not be flesh and blood at all, but spiritual realities calling for resources we don't have, but that you offer us generously and freely through the gospel. We declare our short-sightedness and our need for your intervention. May we live on purpose lives buttressed by your word, walking with one another in hope. We entrust our frailty to your strength, our complacency to your diligence, our hopes to your resurrecting power. Holy Spirit, if you lead us in the wilderness, show us the sufficiency of the word you inspired that we might join Jesus' victory, we ask in his name. Amen. Amen. Please stand and join the team as we continue to respond.